case file number 6.11. Operation Ivy Bells. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So I made mention of this episode um, in a previous one about the CIA. We're back to CIA episodes, by the way. Hooray! Spy shit, I yeah. Have, <laughs> I have more deep technical shit. We need to break that up. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And it's been a while since I started poking around. So it was about time. This one is in regards to Operation Ivy Bells. And this all goes back to the uh, good old days of the Cold War between the USSR and the US. Um, you know, mm-hmm. happier, much happier times. Not like today, where there's no hostilities and tension. I mean, we, we are getting back to the whole proxy war thing. Mm, yeah, at least Russia hasn't flown a, uh, a balloon over us. I mean, they probably have. <laughs> They've definitely done spy satellite level stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it used to be, oh, the Cold War where there were two superpowers. And I'm like, there are two superpowers now. Mm. Russia isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about all about like, well, there's like super carriers and all of that stuff and like the projection of, of, of naval power and that kind of thing. But still, China, I think, has them on that still. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. Which is really funny because the hull that the Admiral Knutsov and I forget the name of the Chinese carrier, same hull, the Admiral Knutsov and its sister ship, the sister ship was uh, ended up with the Ukraine Okay. after the split. Ukraine sold it to China. Oh. <laughs> and China refurbed it in order to learn about carrier operations so they could make their own indigenously, or at least that's what everything that I've seen in like the civilian world estimates it was like oh they're gonna learn what it is to run a carrier so they can design their own stuff very cool yeah anyways as as we've talked about in many many episodes uh there was a lot of spying going on in these days lots of development on encryption intelligence gathering yeah i know go figure in the cold war there were spies Operation Ivy Bells itself was a campaign by the u.s to wiretap the soviet undersea communication lines and this inevitably allowed the U.S. to gather unencrypted information on Russia's nuclear strike capabilities and helped basically lead to the SALT II Treaty, mm-hmm. which sought to stop the nuclear weapons manufacturing and kind of had a hand in ending the Cold War 
um, as we knew it. So the CIA, the U.S. Navy, and the NSA all got together, uh, did a Gohan Trunks fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z to get this done via a crazy submarine operation. And this all started in 1971 when Captain James Bradley uh, came up with the idea of intercepting Soviet comms via the lines in the Sea of uh, Akutsk. Uh, fair warning, a lot, of, a lot of Russian names in this one, so I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll see if I can give you a hand with some of it. I'm pretty sure that one's a Kutsk. A Kutsk. Mm, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Mostly I know that from playing Risk. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the Soviets had a high-priority nuclear base, um, sub-base in uh, Petropavlovsk. Petropavlovsk, yes. On the Kamchatka Peninsula. Yep. Yeah, you're you're getting you're getting solid tries. Yeah, that one that one I that one I recognize. So Bradley believed there were comm lines uh, that ran from the base and to uh, Moscow's Pacific Fleet headquarters in uh, Vladivostok. Vladivostok. Yeah, Vladivostok, uh, Russia. Uh, this was a pretty big gamble to target this area. The Soviets had gone on record forbidding any other vessels from entering this area and were conducting patrols and using underwater sound detection devices. So Vladivostok. If you imagine the old Soviet Union, you go all the way to the east. Mm-hmm. And there's that dangly peninsula going down at the very end. Yep, yep. Pretty much at the end of that peninsula is where Vladivostok is. There are very few warm water ports in all of the old Soviet Union. This was the big one, actually. And it was on the eastern side of the empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so closer to Alaska than Paris by a lot. Yeah. And there was no actual evidence um, to the case that there could be communication links or lines there. So mm-hmm. Bradley was just kind of going on a hunch. And it was basically, if there happened to be any there, it would be a huge advantage to the U.S. intelligence operations to jump on that. And uh, the development of plans started uh, pretty quickly after he kind of uh, put that plan forward. The USS Halib that was dispatched by Bradley to uh, Kamchatka to find the Russian communication links. And their search was narrowed down, thankfully, due to a lot of posted signs on the Siberian coastline warning ships not to lay anchor. <laughs> they just kind of looked around for that and said, all right, probably like a little bit around here. It's one of those things that's kind of difficult to not have. Yeah, exactly. So on the USS Halibut, um, some saturation divers with heavily modified rebreather gear. They dropped down into the frigid waters um, and started looking for the line. Mm-hmm. And they found it at about 400 feet below sea level and only 120 miles off the Russian coastline. The cables in question were only three inches wide. Um, mm-hmm. So it's pretty awesome that they yeah. you know, were well, able to stumble I, on it. That's pretty deep. Not like crazy deep, but that's pretty deep for scuba diving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And in finding this, this allowed the halibut to kind of linger around and eavesdrop on the Soviets undetected. Through this new pool of information, the U.S. was able to gain access to the Soviet recent tactical movements, their nuclear strike capabilities and limitations, and use all of this to our advantage. And they just kind of sat there, recorded as much information as possible uh, physically, and then returned to the United States. Upon returning, the NSA intelligence team, you know, grabbed all of this and started analyzing all of the recordings for any vital information. Yeah. And found that most of the sensitive details on these recordings were completely unencrypted. Yeah, well, so encrypting analog communications, which this is the 70s, right? Yes. 
is not the easiest thing to do. There's, we haven't done an episode on it yet. Although, uh, um, I think it was 99% invisible did a really good episode on it, which is part of the reason I was reticent to do an episode on it. Cause they just did such a good job, um, about how they made the analog scramblers. Right. But it's actually a quite difficult problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's understandable that that would be a difficult thing to encrypt that, that basically making the cables difficult to find was their best defense. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I would have been surprised if they had wasted all of like, you know, even if encrypting these analog signals was like slightly easier that they would waste the time and effort doing that when they're under the ocean and you had a bunch of crap patrolling around. I don't know for sure, but I would be shocked. I would bet significant amounts of money that none of the undersea cables over the Atlantic were encrypted in any in any way either and only the calls from scrambler to scrambler were were, were uh encrypted right that makes sense and so the cryptologists from the nsa uncovered the soviet sub operations and ballistic missile development plans um and they also uncovered a bunch of personal phone calls to messages and loved ones from people stationed on the base the Soviets were completely unaware of the wiretap. So they were just going about using it and just spoon feeding crazy amounts of intelligence to the U.S. for years and years. In 1979, the U.S. was able to use this information, like I said, to help negotiate terms with the USSR during the SALT II talks. Because from these wiretaps, the United States was able to learn that the Soviets were basically just as terrified of a war between the U.S. and Russia, um, and, and like a nuclear holocaust and fallout. Yeah. And so, you know, they would be were able to give this to the negotiators and kind of proceed with the goal of just like easing the tensions, kind of coming to an understanding and being like, hey, we don't want to obliterate each other. Like we, we would like to continue going on living. This is actually really interesting because there have been multiple intelligence. I'm going to go as far as to say debacles. Kennedy, when he was running against Eisenhower, was saying there was this missile gap and it was the result of essentially inflated intelligence. And when he he got in office and those reports were reviewed, essentially, I believe it was Khrushchev uh, was saying that they had a lot more functional nuclear weapons and they were producing more all the time than they did. They basically had almost none. So missile missile gap didn't exist. He was being a blowhard, but we took him at their word and even assumed that they were underselling it. And they took that and they kind of turbocharged it during the Reagan administration. There were intelligence estimates. And this is all like a whole thing where there was a set of non CIA estimators that reagan brought in and gave them access to cia's data and they made these like crazy estimate books that they would distribute to congress right before military budget times but the point is that that there have been multiple times in the past where the u.s was prone to overestimate the aggressiveness and the disposition of soviet forces so it's not just that we had this intelligence and that was and that was uh kind of a coup it was how big a sea change in the thinking that it made by having that information versus what the tendencies of the of the intelligence community had been through many points of the uh cold war yeah because yeah, if you if you're just operating without knowing this you know it's kind of like mm-hmm. uh these guys are probably bloodthirsty like they're just chomping at the bit to like you know start something with us um 
uh, what was it, the the submarine commander, that like famous story um, where there was a blip on his radar and he could have launched a nuclear strike against the U.S. but held off and was... Yeah, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My A friend of mine and I were just talking about it and I can't pull the name. <laughs> but yeah, that, that stuff is... He he actually lived into the into the into the nineties. Like oh, did he? I think it was ninety six or ninety eight is what my friend said. He he lived until one of the like handful of times that we should have had a nuclear launch and we didn't. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the Salt Two part of the treaty was kind of to prevent further construction of what are called uh, multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles or MIRVs. Mm-hmm. The agreement was both countries which kind of halt production of that and start reducing back um, everything. The success of Ivy Bells promoted the U.S. to use wiretapping throughout the Cold War and beyond as a way to keep tabs on both Russia and any potential adversaries it might have found. Mm-hmm. And four years after the initial wiretap, the USS Halibut was decommissioned and the USS Seawolf and the USS Parsh uh, took over. And the Parsh itself received nine presidential unit citations, 10 Navy unit commendations, and 13 Navy uh, expeditionary medals throughout its lifetime. Most of the reasoning behind those are classified um, still to the U.S. public. Yeah. The Los Angeles class submarines, which were, I'm going from memory here, I believe the attack submarines that we had been using, it was I think it's Ohio class were the boomers and, and, and the Los Angeles were the attack submarines the sea wolves were the replacements for those and we actually haven't produced very many of them but one of their major mission roles was actually to do this kind of um that kind of clandestine work it's one of the from what i understand from reading about that stuff one of the major missions of the navy seals has been for decades Mm. interesting for about 10 years everything was kind of well and good with this wiretap you know information was coming back you know, the parts was doing routine visits to um, swap out and repair the equipment, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Till 1981. In 1981, the U.S. satellites uh, show the Russian warships escorting a salvage ship towards the location of the tapped cable. Mm-hmm. And so when the U.S. Parsh or USS Parsh went out to do its biannual retrieve and repair of the listening device, the divers discovered that the six ton, 20 foot long wiretap had been removed. That's what we call salvage. <laughs> exactly. So after returning back to the U.S. and reporting on this, uh, the NSA went into kind of full-blown investigation mode to figure out how the Soviets had found out about this, you know, basically who had squealed. And this investigation carried on until 1985, and it wasn't until um, KGB defector uh, Vitaly Yachenkov uh, pointed out Ronald Pelton as being the reason behind all this. He fingered him um, after he defected to us. Huh. Ronald Pelton isn't one of the names in my in my head of, of mm. U.S. traders, so I'm I'm very interested in the, rest <laughs> of the story. <laughs> so at the at the time, or slightly previous to this, Pelton was swimming in debt, and he had made a phone call to the Soviet embassy in Washington to offer them top secret government information, and the details about Ivy Bell's were sold for only $5,000. However, the Russians kind of put like a $30,000 retainer on him, um, you know, for further consultation and um, intelligence. Yeah. So I, I did a little more digging on Felton because um, most of Ivy Bell's information, everything kind of just ends there of like, you know, mm-hmm. and it got found out and like moving on. So I was like, okay, like curious, never heard this guy's name before. 
Pelton resigned from his job in 1979 when he had declared bankruptcy. He was making at the time around like $24,500, which is $91,500 today. Yeah, it's like that's pretty decent money at the time. <laughs> he was working with the uh, NSAA group. And from 1980 to 1984, he held several jobs. None of them were government intelligence related, anything like that. And when he made this call to the Russian embassy, the U.S. had already tapped the phones of the embassy, go figure, Mm -hmm. and had heard all of this, um, him talking to them. So they anticipated the arrival of some anonymous unknown caller, but they weren't actually able to observe him when he contacted the embassy. Um, So they were never able to determine his identity. They just had a recording of his voice. Okay. So uh, Yachinkov was actually the KGB officer to debrief him when he went to the embassy. Oh, how convenient. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after after that, he went on um, two trips to Vienna in 1980 and 1983 and stayed at the residence of the Soviet ambassador to Austria. And he was debriefed, debriefed rather in sessions that sometimes lasted eight hours a day with KGB officer Anatoly Salvanov. Okay. So while he didn't have any classified documents to offer, um, he was kind of just going off of memory and mm-hmm. provided them whatever he could remember. So when uh, Yachenkov defected, he didn't actually know Ronald by name. He only knew that he was a redhead. And so he just told the, the FBI, like some redhead guy came, um, offered me these information, all this information, everything like that. So the FBI turned around and just kind of scoured personnel files to you know get a pool of all the red-haired people they knew. And they finally matched up uh, Pelton's voice and began surveillance on him. So they they bugged his car, um, they bugged his house, but even through all that, they couldn't get any damning information on him. You know, it wasn't like he was. Do you know how the how long the investigation went on? Yeah, I don't have a note on that. I don't think it actually said. So the big three of U.S. Cold War traders are Aldrich Ames, John Walker, Johnny Walker Red, as he's known, uh, and Robert Hansen. Some of the going to Vienna and stuff actually uh, is right in line with some of the behavior by Aldrich Ames. But we know that Aldrich Ames, uh, they investigated him for around 10 years. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Um, They suspected him for a while and eventually moved him off of the Soviet desk, Mm -hmm. um, but didn't actually get him out of the CIA. Oh, Um, really? Okay. Yeah. um, He had conspicuous spending and there were some stuff that happened, but so like part of what's interesting to me is how long it, it takes them to do the counterintelligence work because like it's a major contrast to how aggressive the KGB and GRU were in the Soviet era because the Soviets were probably first and foremost, a defensive um, intelligence agency. They were extremely good at containing the uh, intelligence assets of the other side. Right, right. So did a little Googling. I can't find an exact time frame, but it's kind of basically looks like um, it wasn't that long. Like it might have been even less than a year. Mm-hmm. They apparently like the FBI just kind of, you know, weren't exactly sure what to do and were, you know, up against a wall. Mm-hmm. So they basically just went to him mm-hmm. and said, hey, uh, is this you on the tape? <laughs> and had a conversation, uh, you know, with him. And eventually Pelton, you know, was like, yeah, it's me. Um, and revealed 
that he had provided answers to the Soviets in return for money. Um, and so in 1986, he was convicted and he was sentenced to three life sentences uh, consecutively. And then an additional 10 years. And on top of all of that, he was fined $100. I mean, you'd figure it would have been like 30000 and a hundred dollars or thirty thousand and one like one dollar and the money that you got <laughs> yeah 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 exactly so that's that's pretty much the end of the story other than that so on november 4 24th uh 2015 the federal government at that time according to this one article still had parole options and so pelton was actually paroled um, really? he, he died in frederick maryland september 6th 2022 at the age of 80 so I'm shocked by so many things here that the intelligence leak happened. Not surprising. Follows a lot of things, a lot of similarities to the folks that we know that flipped. Right. The fact that the FBI was not super like right there on it. Also, frankly, not a huge shock. The fact that he got paroled and that would have been by Obama, right? Like, because 2016 was when the next administration started. Yeah. So he was paroled by Obama. I live in the DC area. I know where Frederick, Maryland is. Like, how did this just not get on my radar? Is this just, it wasn't a sensational enough story. So it just didn't make it to a thing that I would see or somebody who knew me would be like, Hey, this is a really cool thing. That you, like, do you know about this? I just like how this slipped my radar is just like, yeah. Also the fact, the fact that he was paroled is just like, how did that happen? I mean, I realized that he was a very old guy and maybe there were health conditions involved, but that's still. So this article, I'm just kind of like doing a little uh, extra digging. So under sentencing, sentencing rules uh, in place at the time, um, he was presumptively entitled to release on parole. Okay. So it wasn't like, three life sentences plus 10 years without the possibility of parole. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think you kind of mentioned this. Um, I, I did not realize 1985 is considered the year of the spy. Yeah. Johnny Walker red was, he was caught not long after that, but that was like the height of what he, of like he would drop off literally paper grocery bags full of classified documents at dead drops and stuff. John Walker, Jonathan Pollard, yeah. Sharon Scranage, uh, Larry Chin, and Ronald Pelton were all mm-hmm. like 1985-ish. And this is another one of those examples of, I thought I knew this subject pretty well. And then all, and then just like, oh no, there's like a list of things that you just didn't get. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. One of one of the things that I, I love about Wikipedia is just when you're deep diving and you're like, wait a second, what's this? And you click on the link and then five hours pass and you're like, I didn't know any of this. Yes. Actually, that's uh, one of the reasons why Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Foundation is in our new outro as, as a, hey, if you want to support the podcast, give them some money because we all, I mean, I've said it before, you have to at least look at the Wikipedia article because if you miss something in there, you're nowhere, but it's also between the links and getting the keywords and stuff. It's such a great place to start. I mean, we are not just repeating the Wikipedia article. Let me tell you, it would be much easier on me if I was, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is off topic, but perspective wise, if you think about we're, we're both old enough to remember 
encyclopedias and like actually having to use them because that was the thing. And I remember that. And I also remember um, when research on the internet first could actually be conducted, um, how adamant all my professors were that it was not a valid source um, and how it's kind of like, you got to use it. Like it is a valid source. I have some like end around access to JSTOR. So I do look at some of that stuff, but man, especially in the tech world, everything's on the internet and the quality of so many articles on Wikipedia is so much better than any of the, of the encyclopedias we had. Cause we had an encyclopedia at home, but we weren't Britannica rich kind of people. We had the Funkin Wagnalls uh, encyclopedia, which we bought book by book at the grocery store when they were, you know, Oh, it's the, the S volume is available. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing um, what it has done for, Information is being available at your fingertips. But yeah, so that is Ivy Bills. You can even hold this until Christmas time and release it as a Christmas special. <laughs> hey, man, the timing was on you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if we do, we'll see if we can get a uh, somebody to sing the parody. Ivy Bells. Ivy Bells. It's Christmas time in Kamchatka. <laughs> Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.